Would you pray with me as we prepare to look at Psalm 50? Let us pray together. Our Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask that our hearts would be open and our minds would be clear to understand your word as you speak to us. And that by your Holy Spirit, you would, in fact, speak to us and that you would uh, you would shape us and mold us that, Lord, you would cut away the sin in our life. Lord, we pray that not only would you bring conviction in our life over our sin, but Lord, that you would that you would bring and produce within us a, a holy desire for repentance, for drawing near to you. But Lord, we also pray that you would you would strengthen us in a way that we would live for your glory. And God, that we would we would understand a little bit better today about what that means living by faith. And so we pray, God, that you would uh, that you would open our minds to understand your word and our hearts to love your word and that you would strengthen us to live faithfully following you. So now, Lord, I, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> The title of the psalm this morning, or rather the title of the message, uh, is called, called to a living faith. And we're looking at Psalm 50, and you see that's on page 473 in the Chairback Bibles if you're following along. Uh, but Psalm 50 uh, is, is the psalm we're looking at. And this psalm conveys God's speech and action in the lives of His people. It calls into question the genuine nature of our worship by challenging us to embrace a living faith. And so as Dr. David shared earlier, I want us to see this morning that a vibrant living faith produces genuine praise that guards us against ritualistic and hypocritical worship. So if you found your place in Psalm 50... I want to invite you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Verse 16. 
But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother and you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This morning, first, I, I want us to see that God, our righteous judge, evaluates our worship. We see this in verses one through six, and I think it's important, quite frankly, for us to think about this because we don't often think about this reality. That God evaluates our worship. But he does. The psalmist proclaims a prophetic vision from the Lord to his people. He gives us the picture of the righteous judge calling his people to the cosmic courtroom. But the people on trial aren't the pagan nations that surrounded Israel. The people who are put on trial here are God's covenant people. Verses 4 and 5 show us that. It's addressed to God's worshipers. Notice that in verse 4, that they may, that he may judge his people. Right? In verse 5 he says, Gather my faithful ones who made or who cut a covenant with me by sacrifice. I mean, they entered into covenant with sacrifice. And so this psalm teaches us about This reality that God is concerned with the lives and the worship of his people. And he calls us to see that a life of prayer reflects dependence on God and leads to a life of praise. Similarly today, God speaks to us through the preaching and proclamation of his word. And he does this by the Holy Spirit. And he reveals the way that he looks at our worship and our lives through the preaching of his word. As we sit under the preaching of his word and the the teaching of his word, this is what happens through conviction. We are seeing God's hand and God's way and God's work in our life, his word in our lives. So in, in one sense, the gospel lens through which we, the church, are to view this psalm is in the context of the new covenant in Christ. And in one sense, we see here God judging the people of Israel. And I want to point out to you from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, what Peter says to the church. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So the psalmist, he draws our attention first to three names or three titles For God, highlighting the highest authority belongs to him. He's the God of majesty, the God of power. We see it in verse 1. The mighty one, God, the Lord. He is the personal God of covenant. And he speaks. 
and in the midst of his speaking, he summons the whole earth. Get this, from the rising of the sun to its setting. In other words, from the east to the west and the points where they meet. All of the earth is summoned. Every human being is summoned. All of humanity and all of the angelic beings are summoned to his courtroom. And it says in verse 2, out of Zion, he speaks from Zion, his holy dwelling, his holy dwelling place that Dr. David referenced earlier from Hebrews. And he tells us it's a place of beauty. It's a place of perfection. And it's this way because God dwells there. He is in the midst of it. And the beauty and the perfection of God shines forth, it says. His radiating presence unveils sin and illuminates the darkness with the light of his truth. And so verse 3 says he comes and he doesn't keep silent. This implies that God's word is accompanied by his action. Look at his appearance. Think about it. His appearance is as a consuming fire. A mighty tempest of fire surrounds him, is in his presence. In other words, there is no safe place for all who are under his fierce wrath. Verse 4 captures the words of Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2. Verse 4 saying, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And Isaiah says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. You see, his covenant people are being placed on trial. But the point of his judgment isn't to pass sentence. Instead, God, as the righteous judge, desires to bring the truth to light and to bring sinners to repentance, even as Pastor Drew shared a moment ago during our prayer of confession. It's God's mercy that's on display in this psalm. This is not a judgment psalm in bringing his fierce wrath upon his people yet. It is a a psalm of mercy. And so this morning, we must hear the word of the Lord as he speaks to us. Let us praise God this morning. Let let our praise be more than declarations of truth or or catchy songs that evoke an emotional response. Let us praise God realizing that He is the all-powerful, majestic God of covenant love. This is the new covenant of Christ's spilt blood. That He stepped down out of heaven, bore the shame of our sin, nailed it to the cross, suffering God's wrath, and he conquered death by rising on the third day. Then he gave us a helper. He gave us a helper that we might walk in victory over sin and ultimately enter into his eternal rest. Church, this is the God that we have gathered to worship this morning. This is the God of all creation who has provided a way for us to enter into his presence and to come into his holiness through the blood of Christ, the sacrificial lamb. And so this is the God that we gather to worship. What gives him the right to judge? This is what gives him the right to judge, that he's the mighty one. He is God the Lord. And so let us hear the word of evaluation and rebuke this morning concerning our own worship. And let us seek to make certain that we're not guilty of the sin of Israel, offering up empty, ritualistic, and hypocritical worship. So secondly, this morning, God calls us to guard against 
empty ritual through genuine praise. And we see this in verses 7 through 15. Verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Listen to verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. You see, the charge against the, the charge against God's people is a charge against their hearts in worship. And the call is to hear and to respond. You know, this is the case every time we come to God's word, every time we draw near to his word. We don't just listen. But we're to be both hearers and doers of the word, as James says. And so he calls them in verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. The same which God says to us as we gather here this morning. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. The point of gathering for worship on Sunday isn't our entertainment. But the point of gathering for worship is to worship God through singing, right? through hearing His Word and through being shaped by His Word and then by offering a sacrifice of praise before Him. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings to worship the Lord. And so I think this has two implications for our worship. The first is this. Empty ritual is void of a living faith. Verse 8, God says He doesn't judge them for what they do in worship, right? He judges them for what they lack in worship. He says, your burnt offerings are continually before me. They were performing the right rituals, but they were doing it for all the wrong reasons. Look at verse 9. I will not accept, really, I will not take a bull from your house or goats from your folds. It wasn't the animal that God wanted. He wanted the hearts of his people. He desires genuine praise from you and I, from his people. And they had somehow mixed the pagan notion or concept that their sacrifices were actually a food offering to God, meant to appease God as if it would satisfy God's hunger. But in verses 10 and 11, God confronts this and he says, Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. Listen, God owns all the animals. He doesn't own a thousand head of cattle. Instead, he owns the cattle that are on a thousand hills. He knows all of his creation. Verse verse 11, it says, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. It all belongs to him. And in verses 12 through 13, God confronts their empty ritual and false notion with, Irony, verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And then the rhetorical question of verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bulls or or drink the blood of goats? In other words, you don't offer a sacrifice to me to appease me. I'm not the one that's dependent on you is what God's saying. In fact, you are the ones who are to be dependent upon me. God doesn't need them. It's just the opposite. By bringing their sacrifice to God, they show their dependence on and their great need for God. So here's the thing. It did not matter how right their worship practice was in following the law. 
if their hearts weren't truly set on worshiping and praising God. And if their hearts weren't truly set on worshiping and praising God, then they missed the whole point of worship. Hear me out, brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter how doctrinally sound our songs are, nor does it matter how theologically sound our belief in God is. If, if our hearts aren't set on praising God, because if our hearts aren't set on praising God, then we've missed the point of worship. Let us not fall into the modern day trap that gathering for Sunday morning equals or is equivalent to acceptable worship before God. As if we've maybe paid our religious debt for the week. Here's the challenge. Don't offer worship that's empty ritually. God doesn't want our empty, hollow worship. Instead, God wants hearts that are genuinely praising him. So instead, let us prove God's faithfulness. Secondly, by living faith. Living faith is displayed through genuine praise. We see this in verses 14 and 15. Well, what do I mean by living faith? Living faith is a life that's surrendered to Christ. This looks like the believer being submitted to God in his daily living and all that we do. He's not the master of the ship. God's the one who's directing her life. We see this in two ways. In verse, excuse me, in verse 15, we see that living faith operates on a cycle of prayer and praise. Verse 15, and call upon me in the day of trouble. This is what God's saying to his people. And I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This means that we call out to God in the midst of trouble and difficulty. It means we learn through afflictions. We discern his way in all of life. And it means that we hear and we submit to the revelation of God's word in our lives. Living faith means actively seeking God. Listen, this is God. This is the big picture of of dependence on God. Listen, this morning, if you wake up in the morning and proceed about your day without praying to God, then then I submit to you that you're not depending on God in your daily life. I know that's a strong statement, but I think it's true. You might be assuming God, but you're not depending on him. And assuming God is a callous way to live the Christian life. This is how empty ritualistic worship gains a foothold in our lives. Hear me out. Living faith is displayed through genuine praise. And living faith operates then on a cycle of prayer and praise. In other words, when we pray to God, there will be praise to give. We see this in verse 14. He speaks of a thank offering. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. A thank offering came from a heart of gratitude. A thank offering was an expression of their thankfulness and dependence on God for His provision in their lives. And it was given in addition to the regular sacrificial offerings of God's people. They would bring an animal Uh, to be sacrificed in the celebration, and they would bring it into the temple. And as the animal was there placed on the altar being sacrificed, they were to stand there, and they were to 
to declare all that God had done for them. And then, as the animal was sacrificed, they would all eat the sacrifice as a communal meal. This was their declaration of a public testimony that they needed God, that they had called out to God, and now they were praising God because He had met their need and heard their prayer. Church, this is the picture of genuine praise coming from living faith. When we pray to God, you know what happens in our lives? We look for His hand to be at work. Then we give praise to Him because we've depended on Him and He's answered our prayer. Worship that comes from a living faith is ready to give genuine praise back to God because we've spent time, even throughout the week, interceding on behalf of others, praying even on behalf of ourselves. And then we see God's hand at work through the way that He responds, the way that He takes action and answers the prayers of His people. Do you see how this works out? Every day we're turning to God in dependence, praying to Him, desiring to see Him work in and through our lives so that when we gather here on Sunday mornings corporately, we have reason to praise Him. You see, our worship is more than just words and feelings. It comes from a life of thanksgiving. Let me ask you this morning, does your life reflect dependence on God and your great need for Him? Do you have reason to praise God this morning? I mean, do you have reason from, from, the, from the prayers that you've been bringing before Him? If the, if the, journal, if the, the heavenly journal of prayer would, could be opened regarding your life, regarding my life, what would be written there? Have we been bold in coming before God, seeking Him? Have we truly been dependent on Him for His direction and, and leading us and directing our way? Are we just assuming God in our daily lives? Is your worship empty and ritualistic? Can your Christian walk be characterized by living faith? You see, living faith evokes genuine praise and guards us against empty ritual. There's an invitation here for us to have living faith daily. Thirdly, God calls us to guard against hypocritical worship. We see this in verses 16 through 23. So the first group that that he addresses is God's covenant people who are doing all the things right in worship. But there's emptiness in their bringing sacrifice before God. And there's there's a lack of power in their lives because they're not dependent upon God. But this second group is a group within the covenant people whom God confronts about their daily life and activity. Though they gathered for worship on the Lord's day, in their lives, from day to day, they conspire with wrongdoers. And so the charge is leveled against them in verse 22. Verse 22, mark this then, you who forget God. You see, they're forgetters of God. In November of 2006, some of you know, maybe many of you do, most of you do, I don't know, I was involved in a four-wheeler accident. That nearly ended my life. Every time I get on a four-wheeler, every time the danger of that accident floods my memory. And it's good because it causes me to ride with caution. To this day, I'm a little skittish whenever I go to ride up a hill or if I'm riding along the side of a ridge on an incline. I'm still skittish because of the accident. 
You know, I've, I've experienced my own weakness and inability to stop the weight of a four-wheeler when it's flipping over to, to crush me. I, I couldn't stop it. I, I've experienced the pain and, and, and the difficulty that comes from a long recovery. But even though this experience was very significant in my life, you know, I forget it from day to day. Day by day by day, I forget that it's happened. Not in the sense that it's been wiped clean from my memory, but in the sense that it really doesn't impact my daily life. That is, until I get on a four-wheeler again, then I remember. You know, I, I fear that many Christians, perhaps some that are here this morning, live in this way regarding our relationship with God. Day to day, our thoughts toward and about God are fleeting. We forget God until Sunday comes around. We attend church, we sing songs, we listen to a message, we pray together, and so on. Then we leave church, we get home, and if we take our Bibles out of the car, bringing them into the house, we set them down in the first place that we walk by in the house, and then we go about our week, and then on the way out the door the next Sunday, we pick up the Bible, and we get in the car, and we come and we open it up again. That might be a bit extreme. Maybe it's not. But the point that we need to hear this morning is they were forgetting God in their daily lives. You see, they were what's called nominal covenantalists. They were covenant people in name only. How did they forget God? They rejected his instruction. Verses 16 and 17. He questions their attendance in in worship in verse 16. What right have you to cite my statutes? In other words, who are you fooling? What right do you have to call upon my name, to speak my covenant upon your lips? You know, this speaks to the heart of nominal Christianity today. People who are Christians in name only. Their lives don't truly depict a living faith. They may assume God, but they're not actively pursuing God's hand and work in their lives. They're not submitting themselves to His Word. In fact, verse 17 says that you're faithless. You hate discipline and cast my words behind you. In other words, you put my words out of sight with your disobedience. You see, God's Word doesn't have a hearing with these people. They reject the refining work of God's Word in their lives. I would add, they reject the refining work of God's Word by the Holy Spirit today in our lives. Does this describe anyone this morning? Do we do the same? God's words in verse 16 are chilling. What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips They forgot God by rejecting his instruction, taking his word and putting it behind them. Then also they forgot God in that they embraced the way of sinners. In verses 18 through 21, we see this. Verse 18, he says, If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother or your sister, right? You slander your own mother's son or or daughter. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. 
You know, this is a direct challenge to us this morning to consider our relationships with others. Listen, hear, hear me out. There is a difference between evangelizing lost friends and being compliant and embracing of their sinful lifestyles. The greatest act of love the believer can show an unbelieving or unrepentant sinner isn't to embrace their lifestyle, to be all-inclusive. Instead, it's to oppose it and to speak truthfully about it. Listen, every one of us feels the pressure of political correctness today. And each of us has to be discerning in how we approach complex relationships in the workplace, in, in the marketplace, in our neighborhoods. But we can't adopt the philosophy of love the sinner and hate the sin to the point of our own spiritual downfall. And ultimately, that is what has happened for the children of Israel in this psalm until the point where they have embraced the way of sinners. Not only did their hypocrisy involve their relationship with those outside of their families, but it also involved those who were part of their own families Verse 20, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. They were deceitful, and they slandered their brothers and sisters. They even fabricated things against them. They framed deceit. The point is, this isn't how God's people are to treat one another. This isn't how believers are to treat one another. Moreover, they they can't do this and then enter in with God's people to worship Him. Think about Jesus' words to the disciples in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come, offer your gift. You see, it's, it's hypocritical for us to openly embrace the way of sinners and at the same time think that we're okay with God. So hear God's judgment. Look at verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Brothers and sisters, let us not confuse God's patience with our sin as God's permission of our sin. There are twin characteristics of God's wrath that are seen, I think, in verses 21 and 22. Verse 22, he says, but now I lay, now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. I think first we see that his wrath is reluctantly unleashed Listen, God's judgment in this psalm isn't for passing sentence. It's for bringing truth to light and bringing sinners to repentance. This is what Peter speaks about in 2 Peter 3.9 when he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But secondly, I think what we should see is once the wrath of God is unleashed, it's irresistible and it's irrecoverable. Verse 22, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver you. This is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, don't wait, 
Today is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So the challenge for us this morning is let us not be forgetters of God. Let us hear the warning of God's judgment and repent of our sin and return to faithfulness. Verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. I want to close by giving three elements that the faithful Christian life revolves around. The first is this. God directs our way. He does. He directs our way. We're to live our lives dependent on God. We're to turn to Him and to seek to follow His way. We pattern our lives after His instruction so that we live for His glory. Right? His Word directs our way. Secondly, God delivers us from trouble. And I think this speaks to the prayer life of the believer. We turn to God in times of trouble, in times of desperation, in times of great need. And here's the thing. He hears us. We have the ear of our heavenly Father, and He sustains our lives, and He delivers us from trouble. Look at verse 15. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. Our Psalm 46 that we looked at last week, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And throughout that entire psalm, we see that God desires to deliver his people from trouble because he's faithful. And thirdly, God receives our offerings of thankfulness. You see, when we're living according to the way of God and we're turning to him for deliverance, here's what we're doing. We're placing ourselves in a position of dependence on God, to see God's work done mightily and powerfully in our lives. And the call of this psalm is that we would give response to His hand at work in our lives. And the response is that we would bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving before Him. That as we gather together His people to praise Him, we would come and proclaim His name, proclaim His goodness, and sing praise to Him. You see, this is why living faith produces genuine praise. Because we spend time coming before Him and trusting ourselves to Him, praying, letting our hearts be known before the Father, communing with Him. And in the midst of that, we experience God's goodness as He continually hears our prayer and answers our praise. And because of that, we're able to come before him and to sing praise to his name and give him praise. And so this morning, we must guard against hypocritical worship. And we must see that a vibrant living faith produces genuine praise that guards us against ritualistic and hypocritical worship. And a vibrant living faith begins with knowing the salvation of God. That's what he's saying in verse 23. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. All that I've spoken about this morning begins with the hope of Christ's deliverance. The new covenant of Christ's spilt blood is this, that He stepped down out of heaven and bore the shame of our sin. He nailed it to the cross, suffering God's wrath in our place, and He conquered death by rising victoriously and triumphantly on the third day. Then He gave us a helper, the Holy Spirit, 
that we might walk in victory over sin, calling on him. Here's the thing. He hasn't just provided the way of salvation. God has also provided the means through which we obtain salvation. And so, church, this is the God that we've gathered to worship this morning. This is the God, holy, set in Zion, who speaks to his people and commands us. And when he speaks, he assumes there will be action by his people. So I want to challenge us this morning. Does this describe our faith? Each one of us this morning, let us evaluate our own hearts before the Lord. Are we evidencing in our life a living faith? A faith that is completely trusting and dependent upon God and one that cries out saying, we have great need for you. I want to close us in prayer this morning. And I want to invite you, if this is the first time that you've ever called out to God, that you call out to him, repenting of your sin, saying, God, I need you. Deliver me. Repent of your sin, profess faith in Christ and trust in him. And this morning, if you found yourself here giving empty ritualistic praise, just singing through the words, but not delighting in God's goodness, I want to invite you to cry out to God to deliver you. Tell him you need him. Confess your praise. Let your praise declare his goodness. This morning, if you found your place living even you found yourself living even in the place of of hypocrisy, where in the world one week you live completely different than what you do when you come here on Sunday. Let me encourage you to repent of that. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Confess your sin before the Lord. And there is much grace and forgiveness. Do that today. Don't delay in confessing your need for him. Let us pray. Father, I confess my need for you. I confess, God, my great dependence upon you. And Lord, I confess that I need you to even prompt my heart at times to want to come before you. I think we all experience that. Oh, but God, we pray this morning that you would strengthen us to live lives that are faithful, that our lives would be evidenced, our lives of living faith would be evidenced through genuine praise. We, we want our praise to extol you and lift you high. And so, Lord, purify us this morning. Cleanse us of all wickedness. Cause us, Father, to desire to be made right in relationships maybe with those that we are not right with. And, and God, work in our lives. Direct us. Lead us. That we might give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. Father, we want to see you work in our lives. So we pray this in the strong and the powerful name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Would you stand?